Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name's Piers Kelly, and today I'm talking to Dr. Alexandra Roginsky, whose latest book has just rolled off the press. It's called Science and Power in the 19th Century Tasman World, Popular Phrenology in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand, and it's published by Cambridge. Dr. Roginsky is a historian and a visiting fellow of the State Library of New South Wales and Deakin University, and she's also a friend and colleague. Dr. Roginsky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Piers, for the invitation. I'm really excited about sharing some of these ideas and talking through this forgotten part of our history. Wonderful. And I just wanted to begin by saying that this is for everyone listening. This is a really enjoyable book. It's beautifully written. It's well paced. It takes the reader through a a wickedly diverse cast of characters and experiences. There are so many moments for me that were sort of gothic and weird and wonderful that I started looking at the places that I grew up in in a a different light. Um, But at the same time, you pose really serious questions um, about you know, what it means to know another person or what is a community's place in the world. But I really wanted to start by asking you in your own words, what is your book about? Well, at a basic level, it's about the science of phrenology, which was developed at the end of the 18th century by a Viennese physician and which spread through Europe and to the UK where it became immensely popular. As a form of medical inquiry in some ways, it was an early form of neurology, but also as a science of self-improvement. Now, you may know phrenology from pictures or busts that you've seen about the place that look like uh, a map of the head. And basically what uh, phrenology was about was this idea that you could judge intellect and character from head shape uh, because the head shape reflected that of the brain shape and the brain was divided into a certain number of so-called organs that governed everything from your relationship to your children, to your relationship to God, to love of alcohol, to tendencies to violence and that you could read another person's head or, in fact, have your own head read by looking at this map. Now, it's really important to note, as most people know, that phrenology is discredited and it was from its early days. I have to make that really clear to people because some people do say, oh, phrenology, I'm really into that, and I do like to clarify that I'm looking at it as a historian, as a past practice. But it did have an immense popular life. And this was even after the institutionalisation of science and the rise of scientific authority in the 19th century. And um, it was, I mean, it was contested from its early days, but had this huge popular life. I didn't expect to be doing interviews with people who had seen phrenologists during the mid-20th century as well. So, For me, the book is about why was that? Why was this practice that was existing in its own popular sphere even long after it had been um, sort of excluded from institutions and academia, why was it so compelling and who was driving it? And the book is ultimately about popular phrenologists, so people who were doing it for cash, they were lecturing, they were doing private consultations, and they were everywhere. 
And so this is knowledge that has life uh, as a as a practice in a very opportunistic way. It's about people who are often insecure, living by the skin of their teeth and adapting knowledge, a very tangible knowledge to their own ends. That's so interesting. And it's such a, uh, an unexpected topic, As, you know, even the unexpectedness of associating phrenology with the Tasman world, with Australia and Aotearoa and New Zealand. So how was it that you came to this topic? How did you come to, to write this book? Mm. Well, the curious thing is that phrenology has been historicised from its early days. People have always been really curious about writing its history and about the questions that are asked of it are always the questions of their time so and and place as well we australia is a settler colony new zealand is a settler colony and for me i came to this through earlier research Uh, that led to my first book, which was about phrenology as a racial science, which is the lens that in an ongoing settler colonial context is really pertinent. How is knowledge used to denigrate particular groups, to establish hierarchies of power? And I was addressing this by looking at a collection of human remains um, that were at Museum Victoria here in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country, where I should say I'm also based. And this was a collection of uh, ancestral remains largely, so First Nations people, Aboriginal people, as well as some Māori remains. And it was the collection of a phrenologist, a very well-known man called A.S. Hamilton, Archibald Sillers Hamilton, who was active here for decades in the 19th century. And I was focused in particular on uh, provenancing the identity of one of the people in this collection, a young Aboriginal man who'd been executed in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, and telling the story of these two men and how the collection came about. And in the course of that research, through the availability of amazing um, sources uh, and and digitisation of newspapers in particular, I could see that there was this rich terrain of people doing phrenology and doing it for a range of reasons and often doing it as a form of performance and entertainment. People were taking their kids to phrenologists. They were comparing notes on the different assessments that they'd had from phrenologists. There were jokes about phrenology. It really was everywhere. So I had the opportunity to take up a PhD at the Australian National University and the topic I ended up addressing was this broader history. What what was popular phrenology about? And more importantly, what could it tell us about place? What could it tell us about the hopes and aspirations of people trying to make it in this world or people trying to survive in the case of Australian Aboriginal people and Māori people and, you know, fight for their autonomy? How did this science fit into that? And it's ultimately 
a book that it's it's a book about a very playful practice it's a it's a book about people who shift identities people who talk a big game that doesn't necessarily align with who they really are but it really gets to some of these serious questions about how people are making their lives at a time of immense transformation in this part of the world yeah, and I just on your previous book, which for listeners is um, The Hanged Man and the Body Thief, um, what you do in this book and in your current book that we're discussing today is you use archives really effectively to, to construct a, a quote-unquote history from below. Um, what are the kinds of sources that you drew on and, and how did you make sense of them? Sure. So... I was able uh, to draw draw on the this fast treasure trove, uh, literally trove of newspaper sources. Trove is uh, for those people who don't know a free resource supplied by the National Library of Australia, which brings to life not only major urban newspapers from uh, the nineteenth century onwards, but also newspapers from small towns. And I was able to combine that with also um, the paper's past resource, which is the um, the counterpart in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So able to look at those resources, which give us the sense of um you know, they're, they're very fleeting snippets. It might be advertisements. It might be um, reports of criminal matters. It might be just a little taste of, you know, someone's address or a relationship they've had with another person. And so I was able to start building, um, a, I guess, a collection, a digital collection of all of these resources and from those to start piecing together the travels and lives of more than 200 individual practitioners, some of whom might have left, you know, just a trace. We we can discern them from a police record, for example, in the Police Gazette, or we they might have left hundreds of um of traces in newspaper articles as well as pamphlets and other materials, handbills. There are often uh, in uh, library collections, um, in terms of manuscripts, people held on to their phrenological assessments. So when they went to a phrenologist for a reading, they would store these with other materials like birth or vaccination certificates. So these records sometimes turn up in archives But these were not people who one could straightforwardly study uh, from, you know, they they weren't people who left archives that end up in museums and collections. They, uh, you know, for the most part, didn't leave personal accounts of their own lives. So there was a lot of piecing together, a lot of mapping of movement and, and understanding from that how people were pursuing opportunity where it bloomed. Um, So, you know, one of the great pull factors of the 19th century was, of course, goldfields and one of the great push factors uh, was economic depressions. Um, People would also move for personal reasons. 
but it was really a matter of pulling together the breadth of resources and looking for patterns within them and then uh, finding particular stories that uh, illustrated themes or raised really um, thorny questions and delving into them, looking at other materials as well for context. Yeah, that's great. I love the uh, <laughs> I love the idea of people, um, you know, self-archiving their phrenological assessments, these little handwritten documents, together with vaccination certificates and so on. And it makes me imagine that, you know, if phrenology had continued today, would we be asked to, you know, upload our phrenological assessments when we're applying for, I don't know, a driver's license or something? It's a, it's a nice thought. Mm. Um, but... I, I think people would be posting them on the dating apps, to be honest. Oh, they would, wouldn't they? Yeah. Or putting them on Instagram. Um, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. like, oh, I'm this Myers-Briggs type or <laughs> this version of, you know, whatever strange... Um, workplace team building psychological profiling thing they've just been part of yeah um it's a language for describing who you are yeah yeah um well let's get right into you know the the guts of the book um tell me what does phrenology as a practice in australia and aotearoa new zealand reveal about scientific legitimacy and authority well it's it's a bit of an uns- oh, I would I would say that it unsettles some of our expectations right. about authority because when we think about scientific authority, which was something that was in formation during the second half of the nineteenth century, so this is a, still a thing that is being defined. The boundaries around the disciplines are being defined. Who can do it? That is in that is taking place, and and it's information at the time um this is also the time when we have the rise of credentialing so people saying look i've done these particular courses i have the authority from this particular um intellectual resource so that's forming and people understand in the community that there is this new authority form of authority taking shape but it can also be co-opted quite easily. And the way that it's co-opted by popular phrenologists is through, um, you know, we see the title of professor, which at that point, you know, is a more general term for someone who has particular specialist knowledge or expertise. Um, But certainly this idea that you know, you have a special understanding, you've uh, you carried out learning. Um, there was a particular form of clothing that went with being a man of, of learning and knowledge of this type, you know, top hats and frock coats. And people would, because these travellers were moving about, they would attest to courses or credentials that they'd acquired in America, in the UK. There's a lot of big showmanship talk about being the biggest and the best, but it is a thing that can be assumed. It can also 
be rejected. People were... You, you mean phrenology is a thing that can be assumed that there's Sorry. a common language for it? Scientific, is that what you're saying? Scientific authority. Or scientific authority, yeah. And So scientific authority could be assumed through these hallmarks of... Um, you know, a new professionalism, but it could also be rejected. So one of the things that we'll talk about was when a phrenologist came to town, people were really testing that authority. It was a thing that had to be cultivated and maintained by these travelling professionals and often not with great success. So we see these attempts to um, shore up one's position and people are trying to insinuate themselves into all of the places that denoted scientific power. So phrenologists, um, particularly the leading ones like Archibald Sillers Hamilton would try to tour uh, medical institutions. They would hang around the scaffold in many cases because there was this interest in criminality and the criminal head. But this thing was always being contested and audiences had quite a lot of power to push back against the claims to identity of these people. Yeah, I really love how you show that fact of um, phrenology being contested right from the start and how, you know, it, it takes a different, um, it presents the, the, the topic in a, in, a, in a different light as if to say, you know, phrenology was not just this thing that happened in the past that was dark and superstitious, but people were figuring out what it was while they went along and, um, and it, was a, it was a race to, to, to kind of um, assert authority um, in, this, in this context where science itself, capital S, was trying to assert its was trying to find its own place in the world. Um, so I wanted to um, get you to paint a picture for me. Um, let's say I live in a small country town in the colony of New South Wales, uh, which I happen to do. But let's say it's the 1860s and um, a phrenologist has come to town um, and is putting on a show and maybe I've seen the 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 bills around town advertising this and I'm really eager to go and to watch and to participate um tell me how such a a performance might unfold step by step sure well you've alluded to a really important point which is the build-up to the phrenologist arriving in town because they would often place advertisements before they'd actually landed in town or well before the show to let people know that they were on their way. So you might have come upon this in a newspaper advertisement or a handbill or other poster or notice. Um, You might have also been talking about this with your friends. Um, Phrenologists were part of a really important community discussion as well, um, where people were, people who might have seen other phrenological shows were keen to know how this was going to play out. On the night itself, you might be hoping for a moonlit night because this is the bush ranging era. So you don't necessarily want to be uh, heading from your home uh, into town on a dark road. And you're heading into the mechanics hall or perhaps a school of art or school of arts or theatre. 
And depending on the talent and what other attractions are on in the town, it might be half full or it might be fully packed. So you might be sticking your head in through the window or squeezing in through the doorway. There's a lot of bodies packed into the room. And you see this travelling lecturer on stage. So usually they were men, so a guy in a top hat and a frock coat. Maybe he's assembled his collection of skulls or busts or other posters to illustrate and and bolster his authority. And depending on the cut of his jib, you might uh, be treated to a multi-hour lecture on one of the organs. This might be part of a lecture series that runs over many nights where step by step you learn all of the phrenological organs. But what you're probably hoping for is a bit more audience participation, a bit more push and pull. And the absolute pinnacle of this is the on-stage head reading. Now, this is when the phrenologist would have asked members of the audience or to nominate someone to come up on stage for their head reading. And... The phrenologist supposedly doesn't know any of these people, but they are often well-known local identities. And then they would be proving their knowledge by giving an accurate reading. So part of this is really about testing their knowledge to make sure that they know what they're talking about, that they're the real deal. Uh, It's also about perhaps learning about a scandalous secret about your neighbour Or perhaps it's the mayor who's gone up on stage and the phrenologist has mischaracterised them as some kind of a terrible criminal. The phrenologist might also be doing this blindfolded, so they're proving that their skill is in their fingers and hands alone. So there's a lot of, um, there might be some catcalling and cheering and laughter and the people having their heads read are not necessarily enjoying this. Um, depending on the quality of the show or how many single people are in town, perhaps the phrenologist is doing these so-called on-stage marriages as well, where they're reading the heads of single men and women uh, and matching them up depending on their head shape, which to me sounds like an absolute horror show. Um, Or perhaps they've added in some mesmerism, which was another very popular science of the time where people would be brought under the influence of the phrenologist. This is a precursor to contemporary hypnosis. And then um, they perform particular actions when the phrenologist presses on that part of the head. So these things could, they could be pretty chaotic as well. You might have, um, if if someone is mesmerised and and has really been let off the chain, they might be rushing around doing some pretty crazy things. Um, there are instances, uh, in, including uh, some with Madame Sibley, who was a, um, a very famous person we'll talk about a bit later, I hope, where she actually causes a malaise uh, in the hall um, when someone is someone's not really behaving, and she she orders all her mesmerized people to kind of rush this person, and then there's overturned chairs and screaming children, and um, so you're going along for science, but you're also going along for 
experience and a bloody good show as well. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could have seen one. Um, I like how you refer to public phrenological lectures as a form of rational amusement, and it makes me think of the ways um, 19th century scientists in Germany, probably elsewhere, would put on shows with props, you know, skeletons or whatever, to demonstrate some kind of scientific principles like, um, you know, evolutionary theory or so on, so on. Um, and how today we have, you know, the TED Talks and so on, which are notionally about, um, I don't know, science or technology or design or some principle, but they really strongly re- rely on storytelling techniques and suspense and wonder and so on in order to make their point. So I guess just to follow up on what you were just saying, um, what were these quote-unquote scientific phrenologists trying to achieve in their lectures? What were all these um, performances for? What what was it that they were trying to communicate? Mm. That's a really good point, Piers. And I should note that rational amusement is, of, of course, not my term. It's, it's a really well-recognised um, way of capturing this 19th century moment where there's a lot of anxiety about people of the working classes having too much time. <laughs> you know, this is, there's been some revolutions um, and there is this interest in providing modes of learning and uplift for people of all classes. This is the golden age of the Mechanics Institute, of course, and um, rational amusement, it does walk this line between new knowledge. I mean, there were uh, experiments with electricity on stage at the London Polytechnic. People were um, presenting a, a range of new um, technologies and forms of understanding about the world. So, you know, there's a real breadth of novelty, but also coupled with showmanship. And this provides this opportunity for people to learn, but also to test knowledge. One of the points that's often made about this lecturing format is that people were given the opportunity to test whether mesmerism was a real thing whether phrenology was a real thing. And if it was a real thing, was this person really skilled and able to practice it? And we see it um, in other practices of the time, in particular in relation to spiritualism and which was one of, you know, the the great um, religious movements of the time and this idea that people could manifest spirits on stage and and there were full-blown people in dress-ups pretending to be spirits on stage and then all kinds of activities of audiences trying to intervene in these uh, demonstrations to prove or to test the truth of this knowledge. So it's a time of immense creativity and curiosity and knowledge about evolution and understandings of evolution are playing out at all levels of culture and also a time of great participation. Yeah, there's a great line in your book um, 
I'll read it. Phrenologists competed within a suite of 19th century offerings, circus, opera, theatre, minstrel shows, panoramas, popular science displays that included the illusions of London scientific entrepreneur Professor Pepper and, worst of all, other phrenologists. So you kind of contextualise this as uh, as competing um, competing for other forms of entertainment and not just seeing it as one thing, um, which I really enjoy. Um so one of the things I learned from your book is that phrenology in 19th century Australia and New Zealand is never just one thing. It's practised by all classes and all genders, by Aboriginal people, by other people of colour. Um, but the performance of phrenology is doing different kinds of things depending on the positionality of the practitioner. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. The the thing that we have to remember about phrenology is that it was a really flexible system of ideas and system of practices. And because it was a thing that you could learn from a pamphlet, you could learn from attending lectures, or you might just glean from having observed, you know, a phrenologist read heads in bars, or you might have read about it in a short story. It's a thing that becomes immensely adaptable. And in its adaptability, it creates opportunity as well. So that can work in a number of ways. I mean, It can be the phrenologist who decides that they're going to have a go at adapting this thing that they've learned or picked up into a business. It can be a performer. So we have to remember that during the 19th century, there was a great interest in Indigenous performers and My book talks about several people, including a Māori chief called Tamati Hapi Manata Farnaki, who was from the Tapuika Iwi, who travelled with a uh, very well-known phrenologist and mesmerist called Thomas Guthrie Carr. And what he would do on stage was he would he was a he was a very skilled performer. He travelled to England. He'd performed in medicine shows. He was part of a group of people who was also very adept at using the law to sue for money that was owed to him when contracts were breached. So he's a very canny um, operator, and and. Happy Mana would um, take part in these shows by allowing himself to be supposedly mesmerised by the phrenologist and then uh, performing particular actions, um, some of them like a Māori haka, for example, a particular kind of war dance when um, that part of his head was stimulated. And... So that was an opportunity for him as a performer um, to piggyback onto the science um, for his own means. And it's, I mean, it's really important to recognise that people who are in those shows are working within pretty oppressive colonial structures. They are losing their country and ancestral estates within this region as well. But they are um, also working with the 
popular cultural tools that are available at that time. And uh, we see also in terms of um, gender, we see how women adapt phrenology, often in a different way. They're not so much lecturing on the stages, but inhabiting spaces like arcades and markets where they're combining with other forms of divination or um, as middle-class women taking it up as a form of self-improvement and gender improvement. So we see this breadth of practitioners and this science surfacing for debate and understanding in really mixed ways. Um, One of my favourite anecdotes about phrenology comes from a lecture given by the very famous Aboriginal activist, Hugh Anderson, who says that um, he tells a story about a phrenologist coming to visit an Aboriginal group um, and the group ends up making fun of him but they row him out into the middle of the river and they say, you know about phrenology, but you know about swimology. And then he, you know, he gets he gets dunked in the river. And so this person becomes the source of a joke. So um yeah, the different social situations really uh evolve depending on the context and the science will surface in these really mixed ways. Yeah, so all these kinds of figures are contrasted with the more kind of um, boring, solemn scientific lecturer. So these are all um, people doing different things with phrenology or they seem to be using phrenology to do something more, something else. Um, when, When an outsider phrenologist entered into a new colonial settlement and started reading heads, what... um, what was at play? What what were the things outside of phrenology that were at play? Well, they were offering a service uh, at a at a day to day level. So they were offering people the chance to come along for a consultation to learn about themselves, to learn about their children. Uh, often, people would um, take their kids along to understand more about their child so they can give them the best opportunity and advantage. I think a thing that is really recognisable to us and and probably timeless. And they were also telling the town about itself. They um, They were masters of flattery, so there would be a lot of praise in the lectures. Um, Newspapers liked to report on someone saying that Town X had, um, you know, superior heads to the next town along. This this was uh, reported in the newspapers. So at a time uh, when these communities, which were often very fluid or, or new in formation, um, were developing an identity, it was contributing to that conversation. And there were also disturbing the social order but in a very contained way and by that I mean they were creating the opportunity for play, for humour, just ruffling the feathers of the town in itself. So it could be the visit of a phrenologist was a pretty, um, could be a pretty fun thing and it could also be an opportunity to learn and, and try to get ahead yourself. 
Mm. Yeah, I like the way you put it, you know, it's a way of um, playing out the politics of a community or um, reconsidering the politics of a community. And there's something very carnivalesque about it, isn't there? When you've got, a say, the mayor up on stage who might be in the process of being humiliated, in fact, um, but it's in this contained way. Um, I want to now turn to someone you've mentioned earlier, um, the the figure of Madame Sibley. Can you tell us about her? Sure. So Madame Sibley, uh, birth name Mary and married name Mary Element, as she was known in the records, but professionally known as Madame Marie Sibley, was um, a very famous female lecturer in phrenology and mesmerism in southeastern Australia for several decades. And she appears on the cover of my book. Um, And I've mentioned that men used to wear top hats and frock coats. They were very serious-looking female performers. Um, Ever was it thus were... uh, you know, scrutinised for their clothing and appearance. And she's dressed in a very theatrical fashion with beading. There's almost an Orientalist element to her outfit. So she's very much a figure from the world of theatre as well as from the world of science. And Madame Sibley um, appeared in the southeastern colonies in 1869. She'd come to Australia through New Zealand with her husband and she began lecturing and she, you know, dubbed herself the Wonderful Woman and she was a much commented um, upon figure of this time. Uh, she was very tuned to uh, the the drama of showmanship, um, but she was also negotiating life as a woman. She'd had multiple children by the time she turns up on Australian stages, some of whom had died. She was travelling with her daughter for a period of time And um, she's someone I'm continuing to research and the sense I get is that these lecturing sojourns were periodic and that she would go back um, home and, and, you know, do personal readings from home um, in between these travels. But the travelling lectures were very much reported in the press and in 1870 she's involved in a very ugly matter in the town of Maryborough in which she basically brings a a civil case against a man who's been her manager and probably also her lover um, trying to gain a separation from him because she's been trying to leave him. He has been incredibly physically abusive and, and threatened her life, in fact, through these actions. And she's involved in this very public um, dispute. This was not, uh, the law was often a very problematic place for women, especially women such as her, who was um, a performer, a very public figure. And she, she does manage to escape this man and then becomes quite violent for a period of time. She, during the 1870s, there are various instances where she horsewhips or punches people when they come to collect a bill or there's some personal dispute. 
And this, I'm really fascinated by trying to understand how she's making her way as a woman on the road in this time, in between raising children, supporting herself, supporting her husband, um, who it seems she's still sending money back to at a certain point, and surviving in that world. Yeah, such an interesting character and and a really um, striking front cover of your book too. Um, in one chapter, you talk about the successive visits of two phrenologists to um, the Maloga mission. I don't know how to pronounce that. Maloga, Maloga. 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 What was this mission and, and what happened when they arrived? So the mission was established on Yorta Yorta country on the Murray River in southeastern Australia uh, in 1874 by a local um, Cornish businessman and Methodist uh, called Daniel Matthews and his wife, Janet. And it was a home to members of Yorta Yorta clans, as well as from people, Aboriginal people from other areas, many of whom had been displaced by pastoralism and the general incursions of the European invasion. Um, Following administrative upheaval, it was moved across the river in 1888 and became known as Cumragunja and was run by the Aboriginal Protections Board. And it was promoted as a model mission of evangelism and education and it was home to some really significant First Nations political activists, um, among them William Cooper would be a person who's uh, recognised um, in it certainly at least by Australian listeners um, and Aboriginal people who were petitioning for land from the 1880s. So it's a very dynamic site of knowledge and learning and two phrenologists visit uh, Maloga in 1884. Uh, a man called J.B. Thomas arrives and in 1892 a man called John Joseph Sheridan comes along to give a lecture. And these lecture performances really are in many ways um an exchange of knowledge and information. So when J.B. Thomas comes, local Aboriginal people also um, perform uh, elements of culture as part of this display. And I really wanted to try and understand what was happening in in that moment that is created. Um, It's really important to remember that this is a mission context within uh, the settler colonial context. There is a very clear power dynamic. But those moments of um, testing the phrenology as well, of testing the knowledge that is being presented also create some surprising moments. And they certainly indicate that other elements of these shows like magic lantern projections were very uh, well received by um, Aboriginal people here and that this show, this was part of a show that was bundled with a bunch of things that were actually um, potentially quite entertaining. But we see this um, quite complex interchange We know that with John Joseph Sheridan, for example, who came in 1892, he's someone who's really desperate to prove his credentials. 
Um, Interestingly, both of these men who claim to be applying this racial science and have all this knowledge, they had very little experience of Aboriginal people, as um, as was often the case. So it, they're, they're sort of tense exchanges of um, power in that moment. Yeah, it's so. This is a very, it's a very interesting chapter, and one that's even more uncomfortable and um fascinating is for me chapter six the titled black phrenologists black masks um it's <laughs> deeply difficult to read and i learnt an awful lot of things um um but after you've after what you've just been talking about earlier about discredited race science and and informing or at least contextualizing phrenological practice, it's kind of astonishing to learn about black phrenologists in the Tasman world. Could you start, could you tell us something about that, but maybe start by talking about minstrelsy and how it came to the Southern Hemisphere? Sure. I mean, if I may um, make a more general statement, um, black phrenologists were um, quite well-known in in various places. So um, in the US, for example, and and the historian Rachel Walker has just written a fabulous book called Beauty and the Brain uh, that talks about um, people of colour and and, uh, how the malleability of phrenology meant that people would um, take different elements from it that they felt served particular particular um, particular political ends or particular narratives about equality and um, apply it. So there were, you know, diverse practitioners. Um, but the black phrenologist of popular minstrel culture is is this sort of uncomfortable double Um, and minstrel culture was a form of song and music and performance that stemmed um, from the 1828 song Jump Jim Crow from America. It it really mocked enslaved peoples on plantations in particular, Um, highly racist and it spread rapidly, rapidly through the Anglosphere. So it very quickly became a form of performance that was everywhere. And it was um, a world of, you know, caricature and um, lampooning not only of race but other phenomena, social phenomena of the time. And one of the um, archetypes that emerges from minstrel culture and and the so-called Ethiopian plays was this character of the black phrenologist. And so what this caricature who, you know, would speak in the degraded language of minstrelsy um, sort of captured... Or, or what minstrelsy was trying to lampoon through this figure was race, but also the mob- social mobility of the black middle class. 
So people who were rising to positions um, within the professions, who were political leaders, and the phrenologists, because they were seen as, um, were often people on the make, they were self-made people. (laughs) The phrenologist becomes this kind of um, figure who epitomises social mobility and race at once. And there are so many um, caricatures and references to this figure within minstrel culture. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it becomes a sort of a a stand-in for a threatening, rising, potentially rising black middle class. Um, Is it also the case that while everything's being lampooned and it seems to me Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it seems to me that phrenology is being lampooned at the same time as it's being used as a tool for lampooning other things. So everyone's getting lampooned simultaneously. Yeah, I think... um... I'm just thinking of these, the lyrics to these songs. These mm. I won't read them because they're frightful. But, um, <laughs> but some of these awful songs that um, seem to be making lots of points at once, but also um, also trying to maybe discredit phrenology or am I reading it wrong? No, you're reading it absolutely correctly. And um, what I, I believe you're referring to is a song by the performer Bert Williams who, um, who had started out as a performer in, in minstrel shows. He's a... Um, a man of African descent in America, and he then ends up, um, you know, once he's he's transitioned out of being a performer in minstrelsy to um, performing more of these comic songs, he he does pen a song that is ostensibly about the benefits of phrenology but is also making fun of it because it's so ridiculous because he's saying, you know, for example, phrenology says that if you have this bump, it means you're going to steal chickens. And um, and and then we have, yeah, so it's this quite dense world of cultural play and playing with symbolism and it, it's quite slippery to um, try to grasp which way the joke is flowing. Particularly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, on now that we've kind of set the scene, could you tell us about this individual, Leo Mado, I don't know how to pronounce his name, who's a very ambiguous and very interesting character? Yes. Now, I pronounce his name Leo Mado, um, but perhaps it's a moot point because he is a made-up name, as far as I can tell. He... he arrives in Aotearoa, New Zealand um, and pops up in the record in the mid-1860s in the town of Whanganui. And at this point, his name is Benjamin Strawn. He is a hairdresser. He is a gold prospector. He's a caterer. He's a thespian. He runs performances and is very passionate about the stage and um, is a local identity and um, is, you know, a bit grifty, 
at times. Um, like a lot of people in the in this period, he is a, a man on the make. And in 1880 in Dunedin, he becomes Leo Meadow, a phrenological lecturer. He turns up with a watch and a and a top hat on stage. And he's now this different person who advertises his lecture performances. He uh, lectures with a bust, uh, sorry, cast of the head of Ned Kelly at a certain point as well, the, the Australian bushranger. So he remakes himself, in a sense, in this identity uh, we know that in the town of Waipawa in Hawke's Bay, he has quite a following among the lo- local Māori community. He claims to also be applying herbalism uh, as part of his work. So he, um, you know, the m- model is that he would read heads and prescribe. So we see him uh, practising phrenology bundled with other practices of the time. And he ends up sailing to Tasmania in 1896. This is quite a popular um, travel route between Tasmania and New Zealand, a major shipping route. And he ends up in Tasmania in 1896. And when he dies in 1902, he is recorded in the death record as Leo Meadow, a person of West Indian heritage. We don't know if that's um, true or or not or if he he was potentially from North America. So um, he is able to affect this quite dramatic transition. Yeah, and he's, um, he's sometimes master of his own fate in kind of reinventing himself, but also the press... Um, racializes him in different ways as well, and sometimes and sometimes they don't racialize him, mm. um, which I found interesting as well. I think there was a point you made somewhere that it was only when he, you know, started becoming a problem or a threat. I, maybe I'm misremembering it that he suddenly the color of his skin mattered to the local press. Mm, that's one instance where. Uh, he's involved in an um, interpersonal dispute at a local level and he's identified by the colour of his skin in that way. But otherwise it wasn't really that commented on in his earlier life. But it was later when he takes to the stage that, in a sense, um, for some of these journalists, he enters this world of performance which is linked to... Um, the ideas from minstrelsy, the language of minstrelsy, and he does start to be racialized in quite a vile way in in the press at this point as well. So there is um, this interesting transition that's possibly about time and, and about the changing language, but also about the space that he's occupying yeah. All right. Well, staying in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, could you tell us about Tawire, brother of the powerful Maori leader Tawaio, excuse my terrible pronunciation, <laughs> and what he did with his acquired phrenological knowledge? Of course. So I'm very fond of Tafare. He was um, the brother-in-law of the Waikato chief Tafiao, 
And this is a time, this is a very tense diplomatic time. There has been great um, resistance by Māori in Aotearoa uh, throughout uh, the mid-19th century. And at this point, the um, Premier George Grey and the Native Minister John Sheehan of the settler government um, travel through the central and western parts of the North Island. It's 1878. And um, these are very important diplomatic meetings. Many of them take place in what's known as uh, Tarohepotai or the King Country on Nati Manyapoto Country. And um, there are a series of feasts and negotiations and discussions surrounding land and um, really the rights of Māori to maintain autonomy and particular country. And there's this moment when Tafare, who has travelled, um, he's been part of these uh, ethnographic shows, he's been to Great Britain, he's travelled with someone called Mr Dixon, and his stage name was Dickie Diamond. And he reads the head of the native minister, John Sheehan, in this display. And it's a very short snippet um, about basically he's he's reading this man's bumps. It it brings considerable amusement for onlookers, so a mixture of Māori and Pākehā who are looking on in this moment. And... I mean, the the symbolism of, of, you know, that transfer of power, the person who gets to do the reading, who gets to do the mocking um, in that moment is is very powerful, I think, and it speaks to this middle ground space where people are trying to um, negotiate in, in this area. And... Afterwards, this becomes quite a point of embarrassment for the government. Um, The opposition, as oppositions are want to do, latches onto this and says, oh, you know, look, this wasn't a very serious um, diplomatic mission. It wasn't a serious political mission. But it does show the way that phrenology, it just bubbles up in these passing moments. It wasn't, I don't expect that it would have been the main event of that day. But it was there and it was Mm. notable and it was doing something in terms of how people are relating to each other that is quite surprising. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting um, how it's politicised in that way. Um, And turning back to Australia, what can you tell us about the figure of the bush phrenologist? Yeah, so this is um, a figure who's very much tied to the Australian archetype um, of the hardy, uh, resourceful bushman. Uh, We know that this was a mythology in many ways, that, yes, there had been settlers who had made their way um, as itinerant workers had re- had scratched a living, but this was also an, an ideal that became very romanticised by the late 19th century. And the bush phrenologist is a figure 
who comes up in this literature and in works by people like Henry Lawson, who is mentioned in uh, newspaper accounts and these kinds of colour stories. And he's described in one case as a person who will turn up at shearing sheds and, you know, show his fists and and um, respond to yabba, which is colloquial for, you know, talk, um, in a way that is kind of quite masculine and tough you know he'll read your head but he'll also punch you if you're the um if you're rude to him he's living by his wits he's part of this flowing mass of of workers through the bush at this time um and he's quite celebrated in that masculine bush tradition even though some of the bush the real bush phrenologists who turn up in the record had some very disturbing um qualities and um turn up in uh allegations of sexual abuse for example so it's a very it's a figure a manly figure that fits with that archetype that's very much celebrated at that time as part of the culture of this, you know, new nation. Mm. Yeah, because we're, we're entering into the kind of federation period. Exactly. Yeah, as well. Which, you know, pre, you know, federation happened in 1901, but mm. it was part of a discussion for a long time before that mm. and that that national identity had been felt um from from the mid-19th century yeah it's a sort of like a cross between waltzing matilda and the man from snowy river <laughs> like, um as a count- no go on sorry what were you saying i, I said with phrenology thrown <laughs> with phrenology thrown in absolutely i can see this i can see um you can see this kind of character in a movie, you know, or a, or a, a TV series. Um, so as a, I was going to ask, as a counterpoint to bush phrenology, could you, you, you also talk about these um, city-bound arcade phrenologists? How would you characterise them? So the markets and arcades were leisure spaces. They were, you know, if we think of the Eastern Market, for example, in the later decades of the 19th century in Melbourne it was a place where you would go on a Saturday night and you might participate in skittles or you might um, look at stalls there's you know depending on what the craze is of the time there might be ferns for sale or books and the phrenologist is a person who occupies this space as well so they are um, offering themselves in this leisure capacity and the, by the turn of the century, the arcades and markets, these, these public-private inner-city spaces are full of women as well who practice, some men, but it is a feminised space, who practice divination. So you might think of fortune-telling and palm reading as the clearest um, example of this. But people here are often bundling phrenology with astrology, 
with palm reading. It becomes a form of um, consultation, therapy, play, where you go to this person who's who's off, often really camping it up. This is there's a lot of um, you know so-called gypsy attire, and and this is where the names get very theatrical. Um, so you'll have uh, someone called Annie Cartwright or Annie Stevens who goes by the working name of Zinger Lee, which is, uh, yes, very uh, very much uh, divorced from her everyday life. Um, so it is this world of people who are really playing with identity in a very theatrical way and because it is a woman's space and because fortune-telling is seen as by the early 20th century to be really creating a threat to the social order because it might be leading women astray, might be leading servants astray or um, might be encouraging women to leave their husbands, um, terrible things. And and this has been um, a history that's been told really beautifully by the historian Alana Piper from Sydney. So because of this anxiety about the telling of fortunes, um, it becomes a space where women are having to negotiate not only all of the usual limitations of being woman at a t- woman at the time but also these legal crackdowns on their rights to tell fortunes and very often what happens when these matters get to court in the early 20th century is they're saying I'm not a fortune teller I'm a phrenologist I practice the science so a bit like in the um, when we talked about black phrenologists and Leo Meadow, we talked about the way that understanding um, the joke or the representation becomes slippery. In this case, we've got people who are bringing different practices together, but then also representing to the law that there's something that they might not be or, or emphasising the phrenology when it's not so much a part of their work. So it becomes this floating term, an idea that can be applied. Um, and so it is it is quite a complex, complex environment in which phrenology is playing its role. Yeah, and with a, yes, and with a shifting identities to it's it, that's so interesting because they're taking on an identity but then having to uh, emphasize a different aspect of it when they when they get in trouble there's a i think you've got a figure in your book of the facade of maybe it's the um the east market was was that mm, yeah picture? and it's such a wonderful image because it shows these orientalist motifs that are built into this prestige architecture and meanwhile inside the building there are these marginalised people living by their wits but taking on, um, responding to that thirst for Orientalism by um, reinventing themselves in the same way as the building has. Um, yeah, I, I especially love that since I I um, grew up in Melbourne and I know these, I know these buildings, these kinds of buildings mm. and, and Melbourne still, um, arcades in Melbourne are still something of a tourist attraction, aren't they? Mm, absolutely. It's um, 
one of the treasured parts of, uh, yeah, that former culture that still persists. And sadly, that um, the Eastern Arcade that you refer to is is no longer there. But um, but it is such. I, I love that picture as well, and I love that picture because it shows the facade um, in the very early 1920s and you can see the people on the street and you can see the advertisements for the different shows and, and demonstrations. And then inside um, in, in these images, which come from a criminal file actually, you can see the different shingles and you can see the phrenologist next door to the other phrenologist next door to the herbalist next door to the costume hire shop. Um, next door to the Italian Social Club. It's a, this really rich world that people are inhabiting. Mm, must have been a lot of fun to go <laughs> to one of those places. Um, I'm going to start wrapping up and I want to end um, with the fact that you, in, towards the end of the book, you, you draw attention to the parallels between 19th century uses of phrenology and the the present agitations of the modern era and you've explored these these parallels in in articles you've written for the media could you tell us quickly what these parallels are and what we might learn from them sure so I guess for us having um or you know still living with the pandemic and seeing the way that the responses to um public health approaches and efforts such as vaccination can lead us in you know, lead a community to some pretty surprising outcomes um, and to a lot of resistance and, and people really hunkering down into what they see as their correct form of knowledge. I see a lot of parallels in the way that people use language and argument in those spaces. People, um, one of the things that phrenologists would bang on about at length in their uh, lectures was about how phrenology was a persecution and repressed science. And what they're playing into there is something that's known as the Galileo gambit, which is basically Galileo was persecuted and he was right about the planet, so therefore I'm right as well. Um, This is really common um, in the anti-vaccination movement. Um, and and comes up in all kinds of kinds of um, discourse that are resistant to what we think of Western biomedicine. Uh, so that's one element. The way that people will also draw on language of science of of Western biomedicine, but um, to demonstrate a particular grasp or knowledge, but then use it to come to very different outcomes, is um, interesting for me as well because there are there are a series of moves that are being made within that to draw on authority while rejecting it at the same time. Um, so I definitely did see and continue to observe parallels in terms of the way that people position themselves. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, I'm just going to finish with with one question um which is what I always want to ask people um because I'm a researcher too and I I understand the process of um 
trying to un- uncover things from scraps and from um, marginal sources. And sometimes you feel like you're just getting at the surface of things um, and have this consciousness that there's a whole world that you you might have missed out on. What is it that you would have loved to have found out if you had a time machine and you could go back and observe and be a fly on the wall in any of these moments? Oh, I mean, what a question for a historian. Um, in case it's not clear from, from my book, it would just be the act of being there. Uh, right. Yeah, attending a lecture, finding the surprising sensory things. I mean. Yeah, the smell of stale smoke, for example, <laughs> and body odour and, yeah. All of that, people jostling for position and, to, you know, one of the things there's a lot of um talk of kind of conflict and competition between these performers and obviously newspapers love uh confrontation and um controversy but I'm really interested in how much of that was put on right how much of it was you know part of the show itself so I think being able to follow one of these people around and see where the gap is between what they were presenting, what we were reading about, and what was really going on behind the scenes. Yeah, wow, yeah. Um, Well, thank you very much for your time, Dr Roginski. We've been discussing Dr Alexandra Roginski's Science and Power in the 19th Century Tasman World, Popular Phrenology in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, And just quickly before we go, what are you working on right now? Well, I'm interested in how those different channels of science continue in the 20th century. So I would love um, and, and, you know, do think a lot about phrenology and other forms of popular science in the 20th century as well. So those continuities that we live with today as well. I really look forward to to seeing the fruits of that. Thanks for coming on the podcast and I wish you the very best. Thank you so much, Piers. It's been a pleasure.